Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Hello, I'm your host, Greg Myers, and welcome to episode 17 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. My special guest this week is Amin Cheyenne, the CEO of LittlePay. LittlePay is a payment processing platform for the public transportation industry. It allows travelers to use a debit or credit card, which could be physical, virtual, on the phone, or a wearable to get on a bus or train to pay for their ticket. Amin was born in Iran and moved to the U.S. at an early age. After the overthrow of the dictatorship in Iran, his family went back to Iran. But as history would have it, things didn't work out and they moved to Melbourne, Australia. It is a truly fascinating story. Amin became an investment banker in New York, which took him to London, then back to Melbourne, where he became a part of the founding team at LittlePay in 2016. LittlePay manages 70% of the bus payments in the UK outside of London, and more recently, they are developing the payment system for the city of Helsinki Transit and the city of Porto in Portugal, and should be running some pilots in California later this year. Amin loves history, international affairs, and keeping up with politics and he is also a hang gliding pilot. We have a great episode this week, so let's get started. Hi, Amin. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Hi, Greg. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, where you grew up and went to school, maybe a few things like that. Sure. It's a bit of a convoluted story, actually. So I was born in Iran, And when I was uh, about two and a half years old, I moved to the U.S. with my parents. They were quite young university students and had received scholarships to get their uh, PhDs at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So I lived there for about five years, the only kid amongst a group of mid-20-year-old Marxist revolutionary student activists who were trying to overthrow the dictatorship in Iran, the same dictatorship ironically, that had given them the scholarships to study overseas. So I was there for a while. And by the time my parents completed their PhDs, the revolution they were seeking actually happened. And they were kind of keen to go back to Iran with dreams of building this new country. But unfortunately, the thing that they had in mind didn't really go to plan. As history has it, the country was hijacked by religious extremists, similar to the Taliban. There was a cultural revolution. Universities were shut down political purges. My parents were blacklisted and couldn't work. We had relatives who were politically imprisoned. Then war broke out with Iraq, air raids, bombings, chaos, death, destruction. So very, very dark days. And we were there for about two and a half years at that time. And for people who don't read much history, I think the closest popular cultural reference, kind of what we went through is probably something like The Handmaid's Tale, just with that different group of fanatics. So my parents decided that we had to get out of there. And thanks to their qualifications, they applied successfully for permanent residency to Australia, where my uncle had moved. And because there was a war and the borders were closed during that time, we had to actually get smuggled out across the border, Pakistan, amongst some local people. And from there, made our way to Australia, basically with the clothes on our backs. And from this point, kind of the story gets pretty normal, though. After about seven different schools across four different countries, I got my high school diploma in Melbourne, Australia. I also did my university 
degree and my MBA in Melbourne and did a few years work. And then I did the natural thing for the son of reformed Marxist revolutionaries and I became an investment banker in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to, uh, I'd been married by that time and moved to New York and I worked with JP Morgan and the tech media telco team for about five years and then moved with them to London for a few years. And by that time I'd had uh, two little girls and we felt it was time to kind of go back and raise them amongst our extended family in Melbourne. And I've been back here in Melbourne, the most livable city in the world ever since. So that's my life story in kind of three minutes. Wow, that's quite fascinating to say the least. We could spend an hour just talking about that, I'm sure. I'm sure we could, over a beer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Let's switch gears and talk about Little Pay a little bit. Tell the audience what Little Pay does. Sure. So Little Pay is a payment processing platform for the public transportation industry. Our platform allows travelers to use a debit or credit card. That could be physical, virtual, on their phone or wearable to tap on and get on a bus or train to pay for their ticket. So no more cash, no more proprietary smart cards, no more top-ups and queuing at kiosks. That's the basic premise of it. We started off in 2016, and that was about two years after the City of London launched contactless across its network. And that was the first major global city to do that. And it was the moment the whole industry kind of realized this was the way of the future. Why do we have all these complex systems when we can leverage the existing payment rails? And the London system was an expensive proprietary system built specifically to that city's requirements. And it wasn't really a flexible system. There weren't many alternatives. So we thought if we can build a cloud-based system, payment processing platform with bank-grade security, open architecture with APIs that could be adopted by different manufacturers of hardware devices, we could you know, disrupt the industry. Now, it turns out doing that is not an easy thing to do. And it's probably um, worthwhile explaining for your listeners who are interested in payments kind of a little bit about the difference between public transit payments and retail payments. And there are three really key differences. You know, in retail, the value is known at the point of your purchase. So if you go and buy an item of clothing for $50, the amount is entered and you complete the transaction. In public transport, that amount is often unknown until you complete your journey. So there are complex rules about fares, zones, daily caps, monthly tickets that have to be applied. The second difference is that in a retail transaction, time isn't really that sensitive. You know, if it takes two or three seconds for your payment to go through the device, it's not really a big problem. But in public transport, the standard is 300 milliseconds, one third of one second, or you'll end up with a traffic jam at the gate going through to say, get on your train. And so what this means is you don't really have time to kind of check if the person who's tapping has money in there. It's an offline data authentication at the device. So there are all these questions about, well, who manages that risk? How do you minimize losses? Who bears the cost if the guy gets on train and then doesn't have money? And there's a whole range of risk mitigation strategies um, that we've developed to address these kind of issues. And the third major difference is that in retail, if the transaction fails, the vendor who you're buying the item from will say, you know, excuse me, sir, your transaction didn't go through. Can you try again? And you'll typically do that and your transaction will then succeed. But in transit, you don't get that opportunity. If the offline authentication succeeds, you get a green light, you go on. If somewhere along the process, the transaction fails, the network's down, you know, one part of the process doesn't work, you've lost that. So we have to build a platform that has a persistent state 
throughout. If something falls over, we have to be able to retry that transaction because we don't have access to the person and their card. So we realized as we were doing this, you know, encountering all these problems, this is a very different architecture. It's a very different kind of structuring of the existing rails to do a very complex set of transactions. And it took us about 18 months to build the platform. We went live in Oxford, UK in a trial in about, I think it was July 2017. And now we process about 70% of the buses in the UK outside of London. And we're now doing, uh, we're developing this year for uh, the payment system for the city of Helsinki's transit, for the city of Porto and Portugal, and hope to be running a few pilots actually in California by the end of this year. So your focus is truly on transit only. Absolutely. We decided a few years ago when we started, it was a little bit different. We had kind of broad aspirations to do micro payments, anything that had, you know, small value payments. These complex kind of rules might be associated with subscriptions and various things. But we realize that transit has so many nuances that, you know, where we could really make a mark for ourselves and gain traction in a, you know, very complex and competitive industry is to really focus on this one sector and develop something that was truly differentiated. Yeah, and I would assume given what's going on in the world today, the contactless type payments would be, you know, really improve your business or at least would be a big chunk of your business and people will pay more, you know, with their phone or, you know, with a contactless card. I mean, is, are you finding that to be true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a huge success from the traveler and end customer's point of view. When it was launched in London in 2014, you know, within four years, it's exceeding 50% of the transactions on that city's transactions through the transport network. So the customers love it because you don't have to carry an extra card. You don't have to worry about topping up. You know, if you're a tourist in a new city and they've got this, you don't have to worry about, well, what, what do I do? You just go in and tap your card and you get on the bus. So it's a great customer experience. And you know that just by the adoption rates. The U.S. is obviously a little bit further behind Europe on contactless, but, you know, I think this coronavirus situation is going to, you know, accelerate the adoption all around the world because people realize, you know, this is a also a more hygienic way to transact. Sure, absolutely. I'd assume that, you know, transit's been around forever, so there's got to be some competition in the space. So maybe talk about what differentiates you guys from your competitors. Sure. So... I guess the main competitors in this space traditionally have been transport ticketing system integrators. And these guys are typically very big companies and, you know, at a very high cost, they would typically build a bespoke solution for a city. And it would be tightly coupled proprietary hardware and software, very expensive to maintain and manage, very big contracts through government tenders. And... They were our kind of competitors and contactless in transit is actually quite new. So there were a few guys doing that. Nobody was really addressing the smaller operators, regional cities, smaller cities who couldn't afford those contracts. So, you know, they were our competitors, but we went under the radar into smaller markets where they were not really that interested. And then as we got success, they started productizing some of their products and offering them as a, you know, products that people could take off the shelf. But nobody really has done this in a way that, you know, has been agnostic to device. We, we tell our customers, you know, pick the device you want on your bus and we'll, or on your train and we'll kind of integrate with that through our APIs. So it's a very unique proposition. And I don't think anybody directly competes with us yet. 
The other kind of category of competitors are people like NMI, who, you know, I know you've had on your program. They've kind of the retail payment processes starting to move to the transit space. But I think the difference we have with them is, you know, they're payments experts. And if you're a customer that uses their product, you will see, you know, you'll go onto their portal and you'll see your transaction history, lines, authorizations. You won't see the transit data that we capture. So we kind of straddle this expertise across both payments and transport ticketing. And that's a quite a unique space that we've kind of found for ourselves, you know, and at the moment, it's kind of a bit of a blue ocean, I guess, in terms of how we've positioned ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. Where do you see, and you can answer this sort of from either the payments perspective or even the transit industry perspective, but where do you see that heading in the next, say, two to three years? Yeah, it's, you know, I think contactless is going to be a big theme. It's been ongoing for a little while, but as I said, this, I think coronavirus will accelerate this. And obviously, it's very important in our industry as well. You know, mobile phones, wearables, they're quite small share of the market, but they are growing. And I think they're going to accelerate significantly after this period. So that's a bit of a shorter term, I guess. I'd say an ongoing theme that you will see. And we can see, you know, as a result over the last few weeks, with transit volumes being down so significantly, a number of operators have actually said, look, we're no longer going to accept cash. You know, the bus driver, for example, you know, for his hygiene and risk of contagion, we're just no longer going to do it. So you'll see contactless, you know, we've seen contactless numbers as a share double in a month. You know, that would have taken a number of years to happen. And I think so you'll see that and probably the US more generally will probably see that. It's been very slow in the US, but will probably accelerate. At a more macro level, I think, you know, one thing that I'm always interested to watch for is what, you know, Google and Apple are going to do in this space. They effectively, when you think about it, they've got the security modules, the hardware, the communication network, all within their own ecosystem. So if they wanted to, they could really take a big bite out of the payment value chain. And I think they're developing the building blocks to kind of do that. I'm sure they look at Visa MasterCard with a combined market cap of about $600 billion and think, you know, I'd like a piece of that. Um, Sure. And and, and at some point, I think, you know, you'll see, you'll probably see a little bit of tension at a place where they're currently collaborating. But as time goes on, I suspect they're going to move, you know, come into competition with each other more and more. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. And I've even seen just talking contactless in general, the I think the card brands are starting to, I guess, analyze and figure out what makes sense for them and even raising some of the limits on, you know, the average ticket and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australia, where I live, has been quite progressive in this area. We, I think we're at like 90% plus contactless acceptance across the country. I haven't really on anywhere and not use contactless for a long time. And the limit here is like $100 and it's been like that for quite some time. So you get a lot of your transactions just, you know, tapping and going and it, it just becomes habitual. I think once you do it, it becomes quite habitual. And that's why the card schemes like Visa MasterCard are very keen on the public transport industry because they know that's, you know, at least before the virus came, you know, people who were getting on a bus or train, they're doing that multiple times a day it puts the card at the top of the wallet. Once you get used to using contactless on the bus and train, then you're going to go into the store and probably get used to using it there. And they saw that in London. You know, Once the London transport system started doing contactless, the uptake across the rest of the industry was quite rapid. 
So I think you'll see that probably now in New York, in Chicago, where contactless is coming into the transit and probably in other cities as well. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you mentioned the current situation with the, the COVID-19 or coronavirus that's going on. How has that affected your company and what are you doing for your employees and customers to help with that situation? Yeah, you know, obviously the public transport industry has been hit very hard. We've seen travel numbers drop over 80% in our markets. And so, you know, a lot of employees, drivers, operational staff at these transport companies have been furloughed in the UK or lost their jobs. You know, and our heart really goes out to these guys. You know, you kind of, people take it for granted, but, you know, once it's not there, you realize that public transport is really, you know, an essential part of the urban ecosystem and hopefully can rebound when confidence returns. But for us, you know, as a company, we're a cloud native platform. Working remotely has had very little effect on us. We're still delivering uh, two projects, as I mentioned, for Helsinki and Porto this year, as well as a couple of smaller projects in a few other countries. So our hope is that, you know, confidence does return. And I think when it does, contactless will play a bigger role than it did before this pandemic. And, you know, particularly in the US, which is probably five to seven years behind Europe in terms of contactless adoption, you know, this will be a catch up phase and I think it'll accelerate and hopefully we can come back out of this in a better place. Yeah. But it's a, you know, it's a really, really tough time for the sector and for players within the sector like us who obviously generate our revenues from the traffic. Sure. Sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk more about you. You mentioned already a little bit of your background. I think we got to maybe the JP Morgan position, but maybe talk about the rest of your journey and how you got to be the CEO there. Sure. You know, when I left investment banking, I kind of got tired of that being in the advisory space and I wanted to do something on my own. And I had an idea for an app that I wanted to develop, knowing that I wanted to kind of get back in the tech space. And after a little while, I ended up doing some pro bono work for an MBA classmate of mine who had a fintech startup and helped him raise a round of funding from a venture capital fund. And the investment manager of that fund was a former payments guru, and he had the idea for Little Pay. So about two years later, after I'd met him and helped with our fundraising, he asked me to come with him and help him set up Little Pay. So I joined as the COO as part of the uh, founding team. And as I mentioned, the vision of, at that time was quite broad. It wasn't just about transit. It was about payments, micropayments, hence the name Little Pay. But then after we'd kind of developed for about two years and we'd gone live, we'd spent quite a lot of money. We were a bit behind on our investment plan. And it was clear the business needed to kind of pivot and focus. So there was a little bit of a change in direction and change in management. And that's the time where I took over as CEO. And when I took the helm, we decided to change course, become much more narrower and focused on public transit. And I was quite lucky to have you know very patient investors who supported us through this transition. And we just focused on becoming a lot leaner, more agile, more focused and profitable and succeeded to do that over a number of years. And then coronavirus showed up. So we've got to do it all over again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that are in that same position. Maybe talk about a couple of things you're passionate about. So maybe one work-related thing and one personal thing. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, you know, given the kind of background that I touched on a little bit growing up, I've always been really fascinated by history, international affairs, politics. So I'm constantly, you know, my reading material is always 
you know, reading history books and keeping up with what's going on around the world. Very fascinated with, with all of that stuff. So I think that's just a natural passion of mine. I'm also a hang gliding pilot. So when I really want to get away from it all, I like to literally leave the two-dimensional world and go up into the skies. And, you know, from a work point of view, you know, I just love the collaboration of working with, you know, really smart guys who, you know, we're a very technically capable company. We've got, you know, really smart developers and product people and people who've kind of developed this very unique platform. And it's, you know, a privilege to work with these guys and I learn from them every day. And, you know, it's kind of a collaborative effort of, you know, building a business that's been global from day one based in Australia with our first customers in the UK and now moving across into a lot of different countries. And just the challenge of building that is, you know, keeps me excited about work every day. Sure. So let's talk about this hang gliding thing. So you literally, <laughs> literally jump off the side of a mountain? Most of the time I actually aero tow, which is the hang glider gets tied with a rope to the back of a small aircraft. And so you, the aircraft takes you up and then you Kind of pull the rope off at about 2,000 feet, and then you try to stay up as long as you can. Australia is a very flat country, so at least where I live, there's not too many places where you can go and jump off a mountain, but it's on my bucket list to come to Colorado and jump off a mountain one day. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll let you uh, tell me all about that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So another question for you, you've been around the space for a while and, you know, fintech and payments has become a place people want to actually have a career. So what would your advice be to someone starting out, maybe just right out of college or wanting to, to have a career change and move into fintech or payments? What would your advice to them be? Look, the great thing about the payments industry is that it's ultimately a very broad range of technologies and it serves every single vertical market in the world. So whether you're interested in a particular industry or whether you're interested in machine learning, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, all of these kind of cutting edge things that come up all the time, these are all part of the payments industry. So it's a great place to be able to learn a lot of different domains while at the same time being part of a you know, an industry where you can build networks and continue to build your career, you know, within one industry, if you like. So I think it's a great place to build a career. And I'd say if you're smart, technical, and you want to learn payments end to end in a really small technical group, connect with me on LinkedIn and we can have a chat. Great. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Look, it's been great talking to you. It's a you know fascinating industry and look forward to hearing what some of your other guests have to say. Great. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I know your time is incredibly valuable. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate your time. And to all you listeners out there, thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well. 